Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books Institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. Father Peter Stravinskis joins us today. He's been with us before. He is president of the Catholic Education Association, founder of the Catholic Answer and the Catholic Response. Today's topic is something called the National Eucharistic Revival, which he pointed out to me, and which I shall note right up front, uh, is hosted at the website. I'll give people the website. It is eucharisticrevival.org. Uh, so, Father Stravinskis, we'll jump right in. What is this? Uh, well, maybe tell us first about the genesis of this organization. Sure. Well, um, the initiative itself is a, a product of the Bishop's Conference, but there's a long genealogy to this. Uh, back in the early 90s, I was extremely concerned about what I perceived to be uh, the uh, lack of faith in the church's understanding of the mystery of the Eucharist. And at the time, I was um, a friend of George Gallup uh, Sr., and I convinced him to do a study of American Catholics' attitudes and understandings of the Eucharist, uh, which he did. And I'm going to say this is about 92, 93. And the study revealed that only about 33% of Catholics who went to Mass every Sunday and presumably received Holy Communion, uh, either understood or accepted the Church's teaching on the doctrine of the Eucharist, namely, that in receiving Holy Communion, we receive the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. The other options were, it's a symbol, it's this, it's that, all kinds of other things. And uh, what happened was, um, that was publicized, and some people expressed dismay about it. Fast forward to about the year 2002, the New York Times did a similar interview. And amazingly, the same number came out, 33%. Fast forward even more till about three years ago, the Pew uh, study did their survey, came out with exactly the same figure. Uh, I don't know why it took the bishops uh, 30 some years to uh, express alarm, but the Pew study got them very concerned, and they decided that we had to have some kind of serious catechesis, recatechesis on the doctrine of the Eucharist. And a year ago, uh, November, the bishops came out with a statement, uh, a, a pastoral document on the doctrine of the Eucharist, which was very good. Uh, and one of the aspects of it was that the uh, fallout from it would be the declaration of a Eucharistic revival, 
uh, nationwide, uh, starting at diocesan level, um, attempting to, again, properly catechize people on the doctrine of the Eucharist, and that all of this uh, would culminate in a National Eucharistic Congress in three years' time, and uh, there would be Eucharistic missionaries, as there were for the year of, the, of mercy. There were mis uh, mercy missionaries going around to parishes preaching and so forth. Um, it's all well and good. Uh, the problem, as far as I'm concerned, is not the doctrine itself. Frankly, I've never heard anybody uh, get up in a Catholic pulpit and uh, question the doctrine of the Eucharist. My issue is that the doctrine is not supported by the liturgical signs and symbols. And uh, so right after the bishop's pastoral letter a year ago, November, I wrote an article for um, the uh, Catholic World Report, and the bishop's document was called The Mystery of the Eucharist. And I riffed on that by saying my article was called Gutting the Mystery Out of the Mystery. And I said, the problem is not the doctrine. The problem is the liturgical experience that people have. And I identified 10 or 12 issues that I thought uh, undercut the doctrine so that what people saw did not enforce what the church taught about it. Um, I sent that article uh, to the bishop's committee uh, on the Eucharistic revival. I never got an answer to it. Uh, a couple of months later, I resent it, still got no answer. And I presume I'm not going to get any answer uh, because the bottom line is that so many of the issues that I touched on that I think undermine the doctrine of the Eucharist have become sacred cows in the average American parish. Hmm. I want to get into some of those details. But first, let me ask you, those other two thirds in in the pews, what do they think is is happening? What I mean, even maybe not even specifically about with with the Eucharist, but what 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 generally are they are they there for? What are they what are they worshiping well, so if if the if the real if the real action isn't all that significant in them, what's going on in their heads or their hearts? Well, I mean, some of them uh, gave the Lutheran doctrine of the Eucharist that the bread and wine remain with the body and blood of Christ. Others said that it's the, the Eucharist isn't merely a symbol of the body and blood of Christ. And many of us will recall the famous uh, comment of Flannery O'Connor when some yeah. Protestant woman at a cocktail party said, well, Miss O'Connor, you have to admit it's only a symbol. And she said, if it's only a symbol, to hell with it. Uh, and, uh, and others just say it's, it's a community celebration. It's a celebration of ourselves. It's a connection with, uh, you know, my family history has always, you know, we've all, you know, kind of a Catholic Shintoism. Uh, you know, my mother was a Catholic, my grandmother was, and they did this, and so I should continue doing it. So yeah. there's a whole panoply of rationales that are possible, but none of them correspond to the Catholic teaching. Very good. When we get to, you, you know, you mentioned the, 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 the one article you did, you might have 
covered some of the same ground in another article in The Catholic Thing entitled, What's Really Needed for a Eucharistic Revival, which brings in some of the criticisms mm-hmm. in, in, yeah. the, uh, in the loss of, of, the, of the mystery. Uh, and you propose a list of essentials to try to bring, bring the Eucharist to those other two-thirds the way mm-hmm. it ought to be received. And can, can we run through those? Sure. Uh, the uh, and I'll, I'll say the first one, the maintenance of Latin. In mm-hmm. some, to some degree, why is this important? Well, for starters, um, a lot of people who are always talking about, you know, being the, uh, the children of Vatican II, Vatican II was very clear that Latin was to remain uh, the normative liturgical language of the Western Church. And uh, so, uh, and, and what's the rationale for that? Well, there are many aspects of this. The first is that it's a sacral language. There, there's never been a situation in the history of world religions where there wasn't, as a matter of fact, a, a sacral language uh, for, for worship. So, for example, in the time of our Lord, the liturgy in synagogue and temple was celebrated in Hebrew, but that was not the spoken language. The spoken language was Aramaic or with Eastern Europe, uh, Old Slavonic. Uh, when that was adopted for the liturgy, that was already old. Um, and even uh, the Book of Common Prayer, which is English, but it, you know, it's the vict- it's the uh, the King's English. It's not the English that was spoken on the street. Uh, so, first of all, to set aside a, a sphere of the sacred, but also for us as Catholics in particular, um, there's a universality. Well, the Church is universal and therefore the importance of maintaining a language that all of us can pray to Almighty God in the same language. Uh, I remember a few years ago at one of the papal events, the Pope ludicrously said, and now as a sign of our unity, let's all pray the Our Father in his own language. (laughs) Well, what is that supposed to mean? Uh, It was the Tower of Babel. And uh, so, uh, the Latin, but let, let me just uh, backtrack a bit about these elements. Uh, a number of years ago, I was at an education conference, and there was a young sister. I recognized her by her habit, what community she belonged to. Uh, one of the good communities of sisters, still involved in in education. And at a break, I went up and and uh, greeted her and chatted, and I said, "Well, uh, sister." Uh, what grade do you teach? Because again, all the sisters in that community are teachers. And, uh, and she said, second grade. And I said, oh, how wonderful. This must have been around February or March. I said, you are preparing the little ones for their first Holy Communion in May, I guess, huh? And she looked yeah. sad. And I said, well, you know, that should be a great joy for you, huh? And she said, Father, you know, I'm only 31 or 32, whatever it was. And she said, but I have to tell you, I look at my students, I don't see the same attitude toward their impending First Holy Communion that I had just 20 years ago. And I said, well, I'm sure you're, you're teaching the, the Orthodox understanding of the Eucharist. She said, Father, those children can say body, blood, soul, and divinity upside down and backwards. There's no question about it. And I said, well, then what's the problem? She said, I don't see 
the sense of awe, of excitement. Uh, John Paul used to talk about Eucharistic amazement. Huh? I don't see any of that, she said. And I said, Sister, well, let me ask you a few questions about your parish. Do most of the people in your parish receive communion standing or kneeling? Standing. On the hand or on the tongue? On the hand. Are lay people giving out communion? Yes. I said, Sister, there's your problem. How could a second grader begin to imagine that he or she is receiving the body and blood, soul and divinity of the second person of the Blessed Trinity when the Eucharist is essentially treated as a freedom? And she had sort of a sad look on her face. And I said, I say this by way of trying to console you because your problem is not your problem. Your problem is bigger. In other words, it's the environment in which your children are being called to worship. And the Catholicism is an incarnational religion, which means signs and symbols mean something. And the signs and symbols do not reinforce the doctrine of the Eucharist. One of the things that you, you mentioned on this score is the position of the tabernacle. Where is it now and where should it be? Well, part of this problem uh, is is not so much a local problem as it started in many ways in Rome in the 70s with Vatican officials who were involved with liturgy at the time who were pushing uh, bishops and priests to move the tabernacle off the central axis. And, you know, there's a common adage that says, out of sight, out of mind. And, and so, you know, the, the, the body of the church became a kind of meeting hall. And we've all seen this, you know, people come in and start chatting with each other. And, uh, and the tabernacle moved from the central axis to a side altar, from a side altar to a side chapel, some places uh, uh, almost the equivalent of a closet. And I remember one old lady saying to me, Father, when I go into a church, I feel like Mary Magdalene. They've taken my Lord away, and I don't know where they've put him. And uh, now, I must say, that has been largely reversed. Uh, reversed, first of all, I think, by... Mm, uh, emphasis of diocesan bishops in many of the very good bishops that have come up the line in the past 20 years, but also a lot of the young priests. So I think the hidden tabernacle is not so much uh, a norm as it was, let's say, 20, 25 years ago. Um, but uh, certainly uh, that that's a problem where it's still not prominent. And the Council of Trent insisted on the tabernacle in the center precisely to emphasize the ongoing presence of Christ in the Eucharist, uh, because there were strands of Lutheranism that did believe in some version of, well, they had consubstantiation, but that the minute the liturgy was over with, Jesus disappeared from the species, <laughs> uh, which is even a greater miracle if you think about it. And uh, But in point of fact, uh, this this was a this was a big disaster, and and it contributed to, uh, in some sense, almost a carnival aspect in some churches, where you go in on a Sunday morning, and everybody is chit chatting, nobody's praying, uh, and then, needless to say, the rest of the liturgy is played out in the same mode. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you are looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. 
That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. Next, uh, the altar rails. What is your counsel on this, especially as regards the sacred and the profane? Sure. Um, again, uh, the, you know, there's there's a book by that very title, The Sacred and the Profane, by Mircea Eliade, who was a, a Romanian Orthodox sociologist of religion. And there needs to be uh, a clear line of demarcation between the sacred and the profane. Uh, in the Eastern churches, for example, uh, the Byzantine and the Coptic and so forth, there's literally a wall <laughs> between um, the, the, the sanctuary and the nave of the church. And in the Roman uh, rite, that wall kind of got a, 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 a space broken in the middle. So if, for example, if you go to a, an English country church, uh, you'll see there's a rude screen at the top, and then there's an empty space, and then at the bottom there's what's left of what was, you know, the the iconostasis in the Eastern Church, uh, and in the Roman Rite eventually got reduced to the altar rail, which had two functions: first of all, to separate clearly visually huh, uh, the realm of the sacred and the profane, and then secondly, and very importantly to give people a, a place at which they could kneel to receive the sacrament. And, uh, and with that gone, it makes very difficult the possibility of kneeling to receive communion. Although, again, many, particularly of the younger priests, uh, you know, creatively have put out kneelers uh, at the entrance to the sanctuary that people can kneel to receive uh, if, they, if they want to do that. These are not, you know, minimal issues. They they all have a, a serious role to play. What is the problem with the, quote, versus populum? Uh, well, again, let's go back to uh, world religions. Uh, versus populum means a liturgy facing the people. And in the history of world religions, any religion that uh, had an element of sacrifice uh, connected to it, which is to say just about every world religion, um, the the priest uh, leading the sacrifice did not face the people. Uh, priest and people faced the deity together. Uh, if you go to the Roman Forum, for example, and you see all of these little pagan altars that remain, it's clear the priest stood on the side of the altar with the people. Um, and what's the problem with versus populum? Well, again, let's back up. Uh, ad orientem, facing east, uh, there's a very important tradition in Christianity for that, namely that the early Christians believed two things, that during the celebration of the Eucharist, Christ would come again. 
and secondly, that he would come from the east and therefore face the east when uh, celebrating the Eucharistic sacrifice. Uh, and the uh, facing the people, now, the, the high altar, the main altar in St. Peter's Basilica, the, the Pope faces the people, but it's, a, it's, a, it's an anomaly for this reason. St. Peter's Basilica is not built facing east, it's built facing west. And so in, in the early liturgies, the Pope faced east by facing the door of the Basilica. And at, as the Eucharistic prayer began, the deacon would shout, Versi ad Deum, turn to God. The people turned their back on the Pope. Priest, again, Pope and people then faced the front door of the Basilica. <laughs> uh, so, again, that the exception proves the rule. The biggest problem, though, with Mass facing the people, which, by the way, never called for by Vatican II. There's not a word in Vatican II about that. All right. Um, the biggest problem, though, is it turns the priest into the center of attraction, a kind of ringmaster. And, hmm. you know, for years I celebrated Mass facing the people. But since I have celebrated Mass facing East, uh, whether it's the old rite or the new rite, uh, the truth of the matter is it's far easier for me as the celebrant to concentrate on what I am doing in the celebration of the sacred mysteries facing east than it is facing the people. It's extremely difficult, for example, to pray the Eucharistic prayer and not look at the 500 people that are facing you. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and therefore, it's not even ill will on the part of a celebrant. Uh, it's just a fact of life. If you're facing people, well, you're kind of weird if you don't look at them. And yet, the Eucharistic prayer, I mean, begins with what? Father. You're talking to God the Father, not to the people who are there. You know, what, what you're describing here with all of the, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll use, you know, a, a, a trivial term, the trappings of, 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 of things, of, of the rituals, that this would, ha would have a deep effect on the experience of the participants. Father Stravinskis, that's just common sense, isn't it? Well, I mean, but there, but that there are two issues, Mark, that you haven't lit on yet, and they are far more important than any of the other issues. And the first is reception of communion in the hand, and lay people distributing communion. Yes. Uh, yes. You know, people will say, "Well, in the early church, they received communion in the hand." Well. That's a disputed question in many ways. First of all, at the Last Supper, they say, well, the apostles received in the hand. Well, we have no evidence for that, number one. Number two, that the apostles were the first priests and bishops. But over and above that, number three, um, that to this day in the Middle East, uh, a host puts the first amount of food into the mouth of the guest. So one could actually presume that Christ, as the host of the Last Supper, actually fed those parcels into the mouth of the apostles. Again, we're not antiquarians. There are lots of things the early church did that I don't think most people would want today. For example, public confession of sins and lifelong penance for sins. So I say to people, well, if you want that because it was done in the early church, do you want this? That's a silly argument. 
But where does communion in the hand revive itself precisely at the time of the Protestant Reformation? And we see the clear evidence for this in the Church of England, where Cranmer wrote to Busser, who was the most radical of the reformers in Switzerland, and asked him, should we allow people to continue to kneel to receive communion, and should we allow them to continue to receive on the tongue? And Busser says, make sure, don't make an argument about kneeling or standing, but make sure you never allow communion on the tongue. Make them receive in the hand, because in one generation, no one will believe in transubstantiation. Of course, that's exactly what has happened. Exactly what has happened. And then the second issue is lay people distributing communion. Pope Paul VI document, Immense Caritatis, makes extremely clear the circumstances under which the non-ordained may distribute Holy Communion. And I haven't seen those norms verified in any parish I have ever visited in the past 40 years. Uh, but that's the double whammy on the whole thing. Receive, and the receiving in the hand and uh, lay people distributing communion, as a matter of fact, do two things at the same time. The, the, it's an assault on the doctrine of the Eucharist, and it's assault on the doctrine of the priesthood. Uh, and that was the whole concept of the Reformation was every Christian was his own priest, and there's no need to believe in this um, mystery huh? or this mythology of some kind of transubstantiation. Okay. To the Revival Project, uh, what resources or services does the project offer? Well, it offers a lot of, you know, good reading material to pass on to people. As I indicated, they're going to have these so-called Eucharistic missionaries uh, going around to parishes preaching. But my first point is, in regard to that, uh, if a pastor is going to invite one of these Eucharistic missionaries to come, chances are he's already preached everything that they're going to say. Um, and so I I don't see any great value to any of it. And if we're not we, we're willing, you know, uh, our very nutty vice president always says, you have to go to the roots. Uh, well, we're not going to the roots of the problem about belief in the Eucharist here. Uh, we're going still to window dressing. So have Eucharistic processions, have Eucharistic adoration. That's very nice, but that doesn't affect 99% of the people in the pew whose senses are assaulted week after week with counter signs and counter symbols. How, how do you get the message out? of these these kinds of reforms i mean you're 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 writing this i mean are are there are there a lot of people who are pushing for the for for the for the reforms or the returns uh that that are actually making changes in in the liturgy today well you know there's never really been a reform in the church that's been top down uh almost every reform has been bottom up you know, some people say, well, the Council of Trent. Well, the Council of Trent, once again, is the exception that proves the rule. We had lost half of Europe already when the bishops finally decided we better do something. But I find that I think most of the reform is going to occur and is already occurring through most of the young priests, uh, hmm. particularly once they become pastors. Uh, again, they 
they start to you know <laughs> rebuild an altar rail they um, right. yeah they 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 cancel out one of the one of the blessings of the so-called pandemic was it got rid of the nonsense of people consuming the the eucharist from the chalice and thereby got rid of many extraordinary ministers of holy communion and a lot of the young priests have said what a blessing they'll never come back again <laughs> and uh, so these things but it's very very difficult and and the big problem is it's not the young priests that are the problem but people lay people in their 70s and 80s who resent the attempt to write the course because they bought the whole thing hook line and sinker you know i was going to say uh you mentioned that some of these uh poor practices um have become sacred yeah. are there a lot of the people who were big supporters of them still in positions of power and it's just going to take time oh sure sure yeah it's i mean it's a uh... It's a it's a uh, it's a demographic issue in many ways, uh, and uh, the, the older generation in the seventies and the eighties, uh, either they never bought the nonsense that got started, and so they rejoice in seeing the return to the tradition, or they really bought into it. And so they themselves, for example, are extraordinary ministers of communion, or as they call themselves, ordinary ministers of communion, <laughs> because they do it every week. Uh, so they're the ones that are resentful. They're the ones that, frankly, can make hell on earth for a young priest. And they write letters to the bishop. Uh, I, I have an example recently in another country where a young priest was reported to the papal nuncio. <laughs> because he was making these types of changes. But uh, so uh, the, the liturgy wars are very real. And it's not an accident that in this pontificate, uh, these liturgy wars have reignited in a mighty, mighty way, uh, yeah. uh, particularly well, well, with the prefect of, of liturgy. Last question, uh, which, which relates to your, uh, uh, your, your area of particular knowledge, Father Stravinskis, uh, the Catholic schools. Are the school administrators aware of the 70% problem? And are they realizing that, well, from your story uh, that you begin, Van, with, with, with the nun, are they realizing that this uh, appreciation of the Eucharist through a proper liturgy has to begin at that, that very young age? Are the school administrators aware of this? Yeah, I think most of them are. And uh, the best among them uh, try to ensure that the, the, the masses they have for the school children are, are done well, that they're done properly with, with good music, with reverence and so forth. Uh, the problem is if the parish in general is not there, the kids then go to mass on Sunday and so there's a kind of, well, it's not a kind of, it's a real dissonance that occurs. So, you know, in, in the school masses during the week, you know, they're, they're learning Gregorian chant and, uh, and Renaissance polyphony and, and traditional hymns. And then they go to mass on Sunday and it's strum and hum. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and so that's, that's now generally, if you're dealing with a parish school, there tends to be a real cohesiveness between the two, because 
obviously the pastor is also pastor of the school, but there are situations where there isn't that case or, or at a, a diocesan high school where you have kids coming from a number of different parishes. And so what you're trying to do in one place uh, may well be undone in their Sunday experience. All right. Uh, the issue is the Eucharist. Uh, let me, I'll, I'll single out uh, the article in The Catholic Thing entitled What's Really Needed for a Eucharistic Revival. And for now, Father Stravinskis, thank you for joining us. My pleasure as usual, Mark. Thank you. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.